You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Well, today in Matthew chapter 4, we have a chance to, of course, as we're studying the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of the King, the Messiah for Israel. As we look at Matthew chapter 4, we have an opportunity to study the temptation of Christ. And this is a powerful passage of scripture, a powerful moment in the life of Christ. Now, just to remind you of the setting in which this event occurred, you might remember that in chapter 3, Jesus went to his cousin John the Baptist uh, out at the Jordan River in the Judean wilderness and went out in the water to be baptized by John. And of course, John responded by saying, I have need to be baptized by you. What are you doing coming to me? And Jesus said, permit it to be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he went into the water, and as he came up, the Spirit descended upon him as a dove, and the Father spoke and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And immediately after that, it says in Matthew 4, verse 1, that then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so one important facet of the life and ministry of Christ, and one important facet of this temptation, is to understand that it was something that occurred immediately after the Holy Spirit came upon him at his public baptism. And and I mention that simply because Obviously, this was a very difficult moment in the life of Christ. And the Spirit of God was willing to lead him. It says there in verse 1 that he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And, you know, that perhaps is an awkward statement for some of us as we read it. How could the Spirit of God lead the Son of God into a place where he would suffer and experience temptation from the devil himself. And it just goes to show you that so often God's ways are not our ways. And the leadership of God's spirit is often a mystery to us. Why would he allow us to go through what we go through and experience what we experience? But on the other hand, as Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, his experience was radically and wonderfully unique from our experience. Yes, there will be times where the Spirit of God leads us into ventures and regions that we don't understand and cannot comprehend why he has brought us to that particular place or that particular trial or difficulty or area of temptation. Uh, that, That will be true in our lives from time to time. But Jesus here is unique in and of himself. And I think that the Holy Spirit was leading Jesus to this place so that he could face a time of testing before he entered into his public ministry. And I think one reason for that is that Jesus was being tempted in order for him to be able to more fully identify with us. You know, it says in Job chapter 9, Job was wondering as he went through his trial and his difficulty 
he was sort of wondering out loud in Job chapter 9, if there was ever anyone who could mediate between God and man correctly. And, you know, Job was just there suffering and feeling like, how could God really truly understand the things that I'm experiencing? And of course, God had to be the initiator of that kind of relationship. And so he sent himself and sent his own son to be that mediator for mankind. As it says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so uh, he is our mediator. And and in order to, to mediate for us, he needed to be able to relate to us as we are. As it says in Hebrews 2, verse 18, he can aid us because he himself was tempted. And in Hebrews 4, verse 15 and 16, he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he was tempted yet without sin. And so one reason I think that Jesus goes through this time of temptation is simply so that he could identify with you and could identify with me. But on the other hand, I think that Jesus was tempted in another way so that we might place our confidence in him. You know, on the one hand, so that he could identify with us, but on the other hand, so that we could trust him. I mean, when you think about the temptation that Jesus experienced, it is absolutely in every way the opposite to the temptation that Adam experienced in the Garden of Eden. I mean, for one, the location. You've got the wilderness versus the beauty and splendor of the Garden of Eden. Another difference is the diet of the two. Adam could eat anything that he wanted except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Jesus here is fasting without food for 40 days and 40 nights. In the Garden of Eden, you had sinless perfection. Sin had yet to be introduced into the world. No death, no sin. But Jesus here, as he's tempted, is being tempted in the midst of a fallen and broken world. And so what you see here is that Jesus' temptation is the exact opposite of Adam's. Now, Adam, as our head, so to speak, you know, the one who was really our leader. And if you're not in Christ, you are in, the Bible says, Adam. Adam failed utterly when tempted in an optimal situation. Jesus, on the other hand, passed the test wonderfully when tempted in an incredibly difficult situation. And so we then look at him and we place our trust in him, place our confidence in him. He's the one that can see us through trial and difficulty and temptation. A close walk with him is what we need within our lives. And so Jesus led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And many people will point out that at that point, the body, you know, it's beginning to shut down. It is entering the point of starvation. And the tempter came to him and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now this is wonderful because Jesus, he receives his temptation, first of all, from Satan. And Satan's tactic is the same at all times. And he immediately comes in trying to twist the word of God and place doubt in the word of God. We'll see that in just a few verses. But especially here, he attacks Jesus's position. You know, if you're really God's son, you know, then just speak to the rocks and turn them into bread and and you'll be full. And Jesus responds by quoting from scripture. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, he says, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So just this thing within Jesus, he understood that even though his body was craving food, the thing that he needed mostly was the word of God, God's word, that he was not to live by bread alone, but by the words that came from the very mouth of God. Now, this particular temptation is so common. It's so tempting for one of God's children when they pass through trial or difficulty, to begin to wonder and doubt, you know, to begin to say, man, if I'm really God's child, why am I going through this difficulty? Why am I passing through this trial? But as you can see with Christ, there was not a doubt in his mind about his identity or his standing with the Father. He knew that he was loved. He knew that he was cared for. He knew that there was a sovereign plan of his father in this event that was so difficult and hard. There was just wonderful trust in that moment. He refused to use his position in order to benefit himself. He really is laying down his life in every way. Then, verse 5, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Here, Satan actually begins quoting scripture. (laughs) And uh, he is very good at quoting scripture. Although he loves to take it uh, completely out of context. And so he starts quoting from Psalm 91. And Jesus comes back to him. And, you know, the temptation is very simple. If you're really God's son, then throw yourself off this temple. And God has said that he would cause his angels to care for you. They'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus responded in verse 7 and said, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so I love this again from Jesus. He quotes scripture. Uh, He's quoting this time from Deuteronomy 6 verse 16. And he again is saying, I refuse to take advantage of my position. I'm not going to, just because I'm the son of God, test God by throwing myself off of the temple. Just a wonderful response from Jesus. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And 
You know, quite often I've discovered that people love to put the Lord their God to the test. They love to test the limits of his mercy. They love to test the limits of his favor and grace. How many times I've heard someone say, well, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I'm one of his. You know, so I feel very secure in my identity in Christ. And so I'm going to commit this particular sin. I'm going to you know, live with my girlfriend, or I'm going to be a liar or a deceiver or, you know, rip someone off financially. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to backbite and slander and God, I'm going to, I'm going to do all of these things. And, you know, who are you to judge? God will forgive me. And pardon me, but I think that's testing the Lord, your God. You are testing the very position that he has given to you. You are, in effect, just jumping off the roof saying, hey, nothing bad is going to happen to me as a result of what I know to be sin. Jesus, however, refused to put God to the test in that way. Again, in verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, this is a fascinating third part of this time of testing and temptation. Satan takes him to a very high mountain, and it seems as if this is some kind of vision where they're scanning all of the kingdoms of the world and observing all of their glory. And Satan makes this very bold announcement to Jesus by saying, if you worship me, I will take all of these kingdoms and all of their glory and and I will transfer them into your hands. I will give you all of them if you would simply worship me. Now, I think this is fascinating for a couple of reasons. One is, I think that there was at least some kind of understanding with Satan that Jesus came to redeem the world to himself and wanted to do what he could to keep Jesus from that redemptive work. You might remember when Peter made his wonderful proclamation about Jesus. Jesus looked at his disciples one day and said, Who do men say that I am? They gave their replies, reported on what people had said about Jesus. And then Jesus looked at the disciples and said, But who do you say that I am? And Peter stood out from the rest and he proclaimed really as the mouthpiece for all of them, you know, we believe you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And uh, it was a wonderful moment in Peter's life, a great proclamation. And Jesus commended him for it and for that pronouncement. But then Jesus immediately after began to speak to his disciples about the moment that was coming fairly soon when he would Go to the cross and die. And Peter, upon hearing that, and perhaps maybe feeling a little too big for his britches as a result of uh, the wonderful proclamation that he had made, he stood up to Jesus and he, you know, said to him, you know, far be it from you, Lord. You aren't going to die. You know, put away this talk uh, from you. Peter just couldn't bear to think. He had just confessed Jesus as the Messiah. And so to imagine the Messiah or the Christ dying was just a a ridiculous thought to Peter. 
And so he says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Notice that the encouragement or the exhortation to Jesus, telling him to avoid death and avoid the cross, was in Jesus' mind the message of Satan himself. Get behind me, Satan. And I think that we're seeing the same kind of thing here. Satan is offering to Jesus a shortcut. You can have all of the kingdoms of the world, if you refuse to go to that cross. Now, I don't know how well developed everything was in Satan's mind and how much he knew of the coming death of Jesus, but he understands that there is a mission Jesus is on and he wants to offer him all of the kingdoms of the world without the cross. Huge temptation. Of course, Jesus would not take the bait on this one, but the other thing that's so interesting is that Satan makes this offer, and really, Jesus does not argue with this particular offer. He doesn't say, well, who are you to offer me all the kingdoms of the world and their glory? Who are you to give those things to me? They're not yours. They belong to me. No, the Bible speaks of Satan as the prince of the power of the air. Uh, He is a created being. He is in no way the opposite to Jesus. He is created, he has a limited amount of power and authority and ability. But mankind took their jurisdiction over this world and earth and the leadership of God and handed it off to Satan at the Garden of Eden, at the fall. And when you read in the book of Revelation, there's this little passage where you're seeing the throne room of God. And in Revelation 5, it says that, there was this scroll that had seals upon the scroll. And no one was found, according to John, no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to loose its seals. And John began to weep over it. I think that in some way, that scroll with those seals was representative of the title deed to planet Earth. You know, just the the redemptive thing that Christ was going to accomplish. He began to weep because no one could open it, kind of kind of suggesting that things would remain in the condition they are forever, that Satan would continue to have his position of prominence in the world. And of course, ultimately, Jesus came forward as a lamb who had been slain and was found worthy to open the scrolls and to loose its seals. And so Jesus hears this temptation from Satan and said to him in verse 10, back in Matthew 4, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so Jesus here begins to quote again from Deuteronomy 6, this time the 13th verse, and, uh, you know, rebukes Satan and says, Listen, no one should be worshipped except the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, verse 11, and behold, angels came. And we're ministering to him. Please note that one of the best and strongest ways to combat the temptation of Satan is through and with an understanding of the word of God. Jesus three times was able to say, it is written. 
And so the more you know God's word, the deeper it runs inside of your heart and mind, the stronger you become. Now, verse 12, when he had heard that John had been arrested, this being Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee. So John is beginning now to decrease and Jesus is going to increase. And Jesus goes to what will be a very familiar area as he goes into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Now, this would be really an epicenter of his ministry, the city of Capernaum, a wonderfully blessed little town in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet, verse 14, Isaiah, might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who dwell in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And so, Uh, Matthew, in recording this movement of Jesus into Galilee and then on into the northern area of Galilee, the city of Capernaum on the north coast of the Sea of Galilee, Matthew begins recounting a prophecy from the book of Isaiah where uh, Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah would go into the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. These were the tribes that Uh, were to populate that portion of Israel. And he calls it the, you know, beyond the Jordan River and Galilee of the Gentiles. You know, this is very close to the Gentile region. And he, he says, you know, they will, even though they're in darkness, see a great light. And even though the shadow of death is there, light will dawn upon them. Just speaking of the blessing of Jesus conducting his ministry, Uh, there in the region of Galilee. And so very typical of Matthew to quote from the Old Testament. And so another wonderful prophecy that Jesus fulfills. From that time, verse 17, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of course, we would note that this message is identical to the message of John the Baptist in chapter 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And some have said that the first word of the gospel is the word repent. And even this word is good news. It's good that we have the opportunity to repent and confess to God, receive his grace and forgiveness and his mercy. And so Jesus begins with a message of repentance and an announcement that the kingdom of heaven is close, is at hand, and is coming. Now, verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, when we read this in our Bibles, it almost appears as if, you know, one day Jesus just got a hankering for some disciples and just kind of walking around, just looked out to the Sea of Galilee, saw a couple fishermen and thought to himself, ah, they'll do, and invited them onto his ministry team. And uh, really, you know, Jesus 
as he had walked and talked and and taught, you know, he had gained a following. There were many people who would have considered himself, in a looser sense, his disciples. And so Jesus is really putting, I think, his official stamp on here on Simon and Andrew, or Peter and Andrew, and is claiming them as part of his team. And he gives them this wonderful announcement when he says, I will make you fishers of men. You know, they had been casting their nets. They had been operating as fishermen. But here he tells them, listen, I will actually turn you into fishers of men. And I wonder if Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when many people from all over it, all over the Roman Empire gathered together in Jerusalem, when the Holy Spirit fell out upon the church, and they gathered together, and Peter began to preach, and 3,000 souls were added to the church that day as a result of that event and message, and they're getting baptized probably right there next to the Temple Mount in the baths of purification. As they're being baptized, I wonder if Peter in his mind just began to think about this moment, you know, three, three and a half years previous, where Jesus spoke to him and said, come, follow me, and I will make you into a fisher of men. His nets were certainly full that day. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Just radical devotion without hesitation. They come and follow Christ. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So another set of brothers, the sons of Zebedee, will watch these two characters together throughout the Gospel of Matthew and the rest of the Gospels, James and John. And so you have the calling of these very significant disciples from the very beginning. Peter and John are especially men of note. They become authors of scripture, very prominent leaders in the early church. Here you see a difference between them. Peter was found casting his net and John was found mending his net. And some people see a little bit of a foreshadowing there of the kind of ministry that these men would have. And uh, just a wonderful picture there. John mending the nets, Peter casting the nets. More of an evangelist with Peter and more of a pastoral kind of man in John. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So sacrifice once again. And he went throughout all Galilee, verse 23, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And so the fame of Jesus wonderfully expanding, and this is the reason for his miraculous works, that his fame would expand and his audience and influence would increase so that his message could be heard, which we will pick up again in Matthew chapter 5. God bless you. And amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.